Uh, how many of you uh, passed at least one church on the way to Ridgecrest Baptist Church this morning? Raise your hand, okay? All right, so there's, there's all kinds of different churches out there. You're familiar with that, right? There's a lot of different kinds of churches out there. For example, uh, I made a list I want to run, run through with you. There, there's, there's a mega church. You know what a mega church is? That's one that it looks like a college campus when you drive uh, onto it. There's a mega church. There's, there's small churches. Uh, there's large churches. There are churches that call themselves family churches. There are urban churches. There are rural churches. There are uh, inner city churches, and there's out-in-the-country churches. There are Baptist churches. There's Pentecostal churches. There's Episcopal churches. Uh, there's cowboy churches. You seen a cowboy church? If I had some cowboy boots, I'm, I would go to one of those. But anyway, there's, there's, a, there's a cowboy church. There's a biker church. Have you seen those? Biker church. And uh, I, I like the thoughts. There's, I, I even saw there's a drive through church. If you're too busy to go to church, just drive through, and they'll give you a sermon on the way in. I've, uh, I've heard they give you their sermonettes for Christianettes. You don't want to go there. But uh, drive through church. There's, there's an Internet church. You can go to church on the internet. There's flourishing churches, there's struggling churches, there's dying churches, and there's dead churches. I heard about a church one time that was so dead that somebody died in the middle of the service. Somebody else called 911, and they had to carry out four church members before they got the right one. That's a dead church, isn't it? <laughs> then there's a, there's a metamorphosis church. You may or may not be aware, but we had our annual area-wide metamorphosis youth rally or youth uh, discipleship weekend this past weekend, and uh, we, we hosted this year at Ridgecrest. Different churches hosted going around, and, uh, and I wanted to, to show you a picture from last night. You look up on the screen there. This is a picture from last night in our gym. We set up 500 chairs. I don't know if we had 500 people, but there were not too many empty chairs and, uh, and that was just an awesome sight, an awesome experience. Now, in case you don't know, uh, the, the, all these youth from these different churches, including our own, they met here on Friday night and, uh, and had a worship service. They met here again Saturday morning and had a worship service. They met here again last night and had a worship service. And in between, they stayed in host homes. They studied the Bible. They uh, went out and did some fun and crazy activities. And uh, they kept old people up all night long. And it was... <laughs> Rough. I want to say something this morning. I want to say something this morning. We've, we've hosted this before, but we don't host it every year. But we put the call out a few weeks ago because we wanted to knock it out of the park, so to speak, by having greeters and security teams and people to, to be available in, in a wide variety of ways. And uh, you guys just really stepped up. We had a great number of volunteers. In fact, if you were a volunteer, would you stand up? You volunteered for Metamorphosis. If you're here, if you can... Uh, some are sleeping in this morning, no doubt. Okay. So give them a big round of applause. That was a great job. Well, Chris Schofield, one of our friends at the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina, has said this about churches. He said, America is in, a serious, is in serious spiritual trouble because its moral and spiritual compass is out of control. Lostness is increasing rapidly as churches struggle to combat rampant complacency. Complacency is just simply the attitude of, of being lethargic or apathetic or just not caring. And uh, Chris's uh, observation is, and Chris works across our state with all kinds of churches. He, see lot, he sees lots more information than I do, and this is his take on things. And uh, I, think he's, I think, unfortunately, I have to agree with him 100%. In Acts chapter 13, which is where we are this morning, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see not a complacent church, not an apathetic church, not a lethargic church, not a struggling church. We're going to see a gospel-impacting church. And if I could say to you again, as I'm trying to remind all of us in these days, that God wants us not to be complacent. Amen? God wants us not to be lethargic, not to be just middle of the road. He doesn't want us just sitting around. God wants this church. I can't speak for all churches. I think it's true for all churches, but I, I'm speaking specifically for Ridgecrest Baptist Church. I believe God wants us to be a gospel-impacting church in this day, in this time, 
in this community, among this people, and among those that live outside the walls of this church. I hope you agree with me. If not, we're going to have some struggles going forward, but I really believe that's what God wants for Ridgecrest Baptist Church. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. I'm going to read for you from uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. I've told you for the last three weeks I've been trying to get here. But uh, I feel like the Lord has held me up at the end of Acts chapter 12, and uh, I think for very good reason, because in a passage of Scripture that I would have, have breezed over all too lightly, the Lord has really taught me some things, and I've shared them with you the last couple of weeks. I love Acts chapter 13 and verses 1 through 3. I've been looking forward to this message, and I should be done no later than 12 o'clock. I'll get you out of here uh, about 12 o'clock. So I uh, know three people are leaving. No, don't, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Acts chapter 13, a gospel-impacting church that we find in the town of Antioch. We've already been introduced to Antioch in Acts chapter 11. Here we are back there in Acts chapter 13, and we find these words. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I believe there's a lot to learn here. We don't have but a little bit of time this morning. I hope we can soak it up. I believe God's got some important things to say to you and to me and to us as Ridgecrest Baptist Church. Our Heavenly Father, this morning, thank you for examples in Scripture of gospel-impact churches. Thank you for the history of Ridgecrest Baptist Church, where the gospel has made such an impact in the hearts and lives of untold numbers of people down through the years, including my life, even before I ever came here to be a pastor. Lord, may we look into the future. May we look in the newspaper. May we look at what's happening in our world And may we see that there's a greater need today more than ever for gospel-impacting churches. Make us to be more and more every day, every week, every month, every year. Make us to be the gospel-impacting church that you can use to impact hearts, lives, families, people, community, and even the world through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. I want to talk to you in the few minutes that we have here about four qualities. I'm going to call them qualities, maybe four ingredients, four qualities of a gospel-impacting church. And it's important that we, that we note these things. And, and I want to remind you again, I know I don't have to, but I want to remind you again that as we work our way through the Scripture, any given Sunday, any given message, any given passage of Scripture, but this in particular, that there are, are takeaways here for you and I. Not just to walk out the door and say, well, that was a nice passage of Scripture. Or don't you, I just appreciate how the pastor knit all this together and told those great stories and illustrations. You can say that if you want to. But, but understand, the, the point is not that, that, that you walk out being better educated, but that you walk out being better equipped. Better equipped to be the church God is calling us to be. So let's look at these, at these qualities. The first quality we see here, and a lot of this in the book of Acts, is going to be overlapping Uh, from week to week, passage to passage. But first of all, notice a gospel impact church is a gospel outpost. A gospel outpost. And an outpost is something we think about as a a fortified city or a, a gathering that's an outpost, meaning it's out in the wilderness, out uh, among un, un, uh, undeveloped areas or, or where there's nothing else quite like it in that area, an outpost. Uh, it falls into that category. And notice it says there in verse number 1, it simply says, the church at Antioch. Now, the church at Antioch, we've already met the church in Acts 17, but the church at Antioch. In the book of Acts, the church at Antioch, or the town of Antioch, is mentioned 17 times. You may, you, that may surprise you. It surprised me. 17 times the, 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 the city of Antioch is mentioned. And, and Antioch is a city that had a very diverse population. 
The people who lived there were, were culturally diverse. They were linguistically diverse. They spoke different languages. They were culturally diverse. They came from different places. It was a metropolitan area. It was a large city of about a half a million people. It was a major city in the Roman Empire. It was located about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, about 20 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. It was quite a city in the ancient world. Very diverse. And when we read about the church at Antioch, we're reminded of, the, of uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, where Jesus said to his disciples, uh, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to where? To the ends of the earth. And there in this part of history, the ends of the earth might well have been 300 miles to the north in a city named Antioch. I want you to notice a couple of things about this church in this city. It's the first Gentile church referenced. The first church, the church had been welcoming Gentiles and reaching out to Gentiles, but this is the first Gentile established church in a Gentile area. Recognize also this church began out of the persecution that we look all the way back to Acts chapter 7, the, the persecution that erupted when Stephen was stoned by the Jews. And, and that set, set into course a, a spreading out of people who were both running for their lives and sharing the gospel at the same time. This church in Acts chapter 11, we learn this church, when they heard about the difficulty of the church in Jerusalem, this church received an offering. They said, we've got to help our brothers and sisters that are going through a difficult time in Jerusalem. So, so they took up an offering over a period of time, uh, much like we receive our regular offering. And regularly we receive uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for, for North American missions that we're, that we're working towards even now. We receive special offerings to help special needs. This church did that. Also notice that this church, and we're going to find out today, this church was a missionary sending church. God was able to call out people from within the body of the church and to send them out. You know, every church is not a missionary sending church. There are, there are some churches that haven't had a missionary or a pastor or, or a person in full-time ministry go out from them in generations. They don't know what it's like. And, and, and I'm, I'm so thankful at Ridgecrest we see that on a very regular basis. But this church was a, a missionary sending church but also a missionary reporting church. When Paul and Barnabas go out, that we'll read about in a minute, when they come back from their journeys, they come back to home base, which is the church at Antioch, and they celebrate and they report and they see great things. And, and history records that, among, uh, that, that the church at Antioch was among five major churches during the first 1,000 years of Christianity. It's a major church with a major impact over a long time period of time. Now, I want you to notice something we read about a couple of weeks ago, but I want to bring it back up to our attention, and that is that the believers, followers of Jesus, were first called Christians at Antioch. This is significant because it's recorded as part of the history, but it's also significant because it points out that these people uh, who followed Jesus, there was something different about them that set them apart from other people. There was a difference in their life, in their lifestyle, in their outlook, in, in how they conducted themselves in, in every area of life. So it set them apart, and it also identified them together. Well, who are these people? Because you've got this woman over here, you've got this young man over here, you've got this person from Egypt over here, and this person from, from the north of Africa over here. Who are, who are all these people that are acting differently because of the difference that Jesus made. And so they began calling them by the name of Christian. The, Christ, the I-A-N and the language and all that meant that they belonged to the party of the man called Christ. They were Christians. Back to Acts chapter 11. It says in verse 21, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. They believed and they turned. 
They believed with their mind and with their heart, and then they turned with their actions, their attitude, and their lifestyle, and their family, and their finances, and, and, and everything about them began to turn from what it was and turning to the Lord. Verse 23, when Barnabas came, remember Barnabas was sent from the church in Jerusalem. Hey, Barnabas, go check out what we're hearing in this place called Antioch. And so, verse 23, when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, wouldn't you like it to be said about your life that when people look at your life, they see the grace of God? That's an amen point, by the way. <laughs> he was glad, and he exhorted or he encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Hang in there. It's great to be a follower of Jesus. But in facing the difficulties that come with that, from the government, from your family, from the other religions in the area, you hold on because you have gotten a hold of something that is of eternal value and it is worth the effort you put in because of the blessings, the, the grace of God. Remember, grace is undeserved favor. You don't deserve it, but God has bestowed you with grace of knowing Jesus as your Savior. And so he said, remain faithful with a steadfast, a foundation, a, a strong purpose that I'm going to live for Jesus. He encouraged them to do that. Barnabas, the great encourager. In verse 26, it says there in Acts 11, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. They were given this name, this designation, this new name. And uh, when, when they would say to each other, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Let me tell you. Remember the, the testimony of Paul we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Let me tell you what my life was like before I met Jesus. Let me tell you my conversion experience and how Jesus became my Savior. Let me tell you what's happened in my life since then. Let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you who I was. And let me tell you how I got here. And it was through Jesus. And let me tell you this. He can do the same thing for you. That's what, they were, that's what they were telling. And it was noticeable uh, by others. And, and it was noticeable that something had so impacted them that they were not the same that they used to be. And you know, that's not just true back in the day of the book of Acts. That's true in our day. When a person comes to know Jesus, they aren't the same anymore. Now, I want you to think about this. And in, in the city of Antioch, this large, diverse, wealthy city, diversity of languages and cultures and nationalities and all these things, when, when people were coming out of the sinful, worldly lifestyle and into the body of Christ and having this new name, it really made a difference. I want to make a point today because we're talking about being a gospel impact church but I would make the point today that we can never have a gospel impact church without people, individuals, who have been impacted by the gospel. I want to share with you just a couple of minutes. I wish it, I was, it's a little longer than, than I wanted it to be, but I, I just couldn't cut it. But, but I want you to hear a, 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 a recent story of the difference that Jesus has made in the life of a young lady and ask the question, what difference has Jesus made in my life? God spends a lot of time in the Bible telling us who we are. It's almost as if he knew that we would doubt who that was from time to time. It's as if he saw it coming, that we'd spend our whole lives searching for what our identity, what our real name was, and that there'd be many moments in our lives where we'd let different kinds of names define us. When we've looked in the mirror, compared ourselves to pictures, and heard the name ugly. When we've been left by loved ones, people we trusted once and heard the name unworthy. When we've been drowning in discouragement, living in a seemingly never-ending crisis and heard the name forgotten. When we've had our hopes up and our hearts open only to be brought down by closed doors and we've heard rejected. When we've looked for infinite affirming love through lesser physical fleshly versions. 
when we gave it away or when it was stolen and we heard impure, we heard garbage, when we go to other vices to ease our pain and we hear addict, we hear forever broken, when we feel like we're living in the shadow of someone else's calling and we hear second place. When our pain cripples us to a point where we don't even know how to let others in and we hear lonely when our past seems too gross for others to forgive and we hear disgusting, it's overwhelming. These voices we're constantly hearing, it's suffocating. This air of constant critique and comparing and it's sort of amazing. The people whose voices I've allowed to name me. The power I've given to my past, to my mirror, and to my surroundings, and enabled them to identify me. The amount of years I've spent living up to whatever others say over me. But God says something else about me. It's like he knew there would be other voices. So he wrote his voice down in a timeless book of truths that would remind us over and over again in the moments when lies would block his truths and somehow make us forget. I'm going back to the source, not the people I've allowed to represent God to me, but the actual, literal, tangible words that he has written down for me. And there's some other names he's given to me. John 15, 15, he calls me friend. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, he calls me chosen. Ephesians 2, 10, he calls me his workmanship. He calls me his art. He calls me handmade. He calls me purposed and fashioned for good things. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he calls my body a temple. He calls it the residence of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, he calls me his messenger to the world. Galatians 3.26, he calls me his child. Romans 5.8, he calls me greatly loved. John 8.36, he calls me free, free indeed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he calls me brand new. And it's amazing how different these names are from the names I'm used to listening to. And in my journey to discover who I really am, in my battle to uncover the truths of myself, I've learned something new about my name. And now this is what I am certain of. My name is not the name the world calls me. My name is not the name my past calls me. My name is not even the name my own mirror calls me. But my name, my name is the name I answer to. And I can choose today from this moment forward to answer to a new name. When I hear lonely, that's not me. When I hear disgusting, that's not me. When I hear unworthy, I don't even look over my shoulder. When I hear broken, they must have confused me. Please look elsewhere. When I hear ugly, abandoned, useless, forgotten, I figure someone just has to remind them. Maybe those were my old names, but they're no longer the names that I respond to. My name is the name I've chosen to spend my days living up to. And if these other voices are not saying the same thing that the truth is, I look in my mirror and I repeat this. They have no right to be speaking to you. When you stop answering to your old names, they stop having power over you. The names that my father, eternity's author, the world's creator has called me are the only names that I answer to when I hear a friend of God. That's my name. God's workmanship, that's my name. Chosen, that's my name. Love, wanted, created with the purpose, that's my name. God's temple, that's my name. God's messenger, that's my name. Free, that's my name. Child of God, you must be looking for me. Greatly loved, you must be calling for me. Brand new, that is my name. That is the name that I respond to. The enemy has no power here. Perfect love cast out 
Child of God, you must be talking about me. (laughs) When life has truly been changed, it changes us. And people give us a new name and they want to know where did this come from and we can say to them, this is what Jesus does. So there was a, uh, they were a part of being a gospel outpost, and you may be a gospel outpost by your church. You may be a gospel outpost by just who you are. When you go to your work or your home or your school, you may be the only Christian around. That makes you a gospel outpost in that area. And the encouragement is to be steadfast in your purpose so that people can see the difference that Jesus makes. And I hope he's made that kind of a difference in your life. But as we're looking at a gospel impact church, understand it's made up of people impacted by the gospel, but also recognize that a gospel impact church has within it a cultivated leadership. A cultivated leadership. I, I like that word cultivated because it, it has about it an air of preparing for use. You cultivate the soil, if you're a farmer, to prepare the soil to receive the seed and whatever fertilizer you put in there, you cultivate it so that it can produce the crop that you're looking for. And in the same way, there in Antioch, there was a, there, there was a, there's a listing, a very intentional listing of the pastors and the teachers there in the church. And they're a cultivated group. That stuck out to me over and over again as I was reading through uh, who these men were. They're a cultivated group prepared by God for a great use. Notice in in, uh, uh, verse 1 it says, There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And uh, and then notice there's a description of this leadership that emphasizes diversity. These leaders are a picture of great diversity brought together together in great unity because of the gospel. This list of names here, like like other teachings in Scripture, reminds us that we are, as Christians, to live in unity in the midst of diversity, but unity overcomes diversity and uses diversity for the sake of the gospel. That's what we see happening here. I want you to notice this list of of leaders there. Barnabas, we know Barnabas already. We've been introduced to him, and he's already been in the church. He's been a teacher there. But Barnabas was a Jewish Levite convert to Christianity, and he made his way up there to Antioch because of the church in Jerusalem. Then we see uh, Simeon, who was called Niger. Uh, Scholars believe this, this is a reference to a Gentile black man. And so he was of a different place, and he was there in the church, had been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, and was participating in the church and set apart as a leader in the church. I want to ask this question. When people look so different, why do we still struggle with that? When the gospel sets us free, why do we still struggle with that? It didn't take the church even one generation. And they had, they had Jews and they had black and they had, had Gentile all in the church. Diverse, but the, the gospel overcomes diversity and brings unity that overcomes diversity and uses that diversity for the gospel. There's Lucius of Cyrene. We, we uh, might think back to Acts chapter 11. When the church at Antioch was begun, Lucius of Cyrene was one of those. The men of Cyrene were one that, that came up there. And, and then he was a part of the church plant. Then there's Menaean. It says a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Interesting description for this guy named Menaean. Uh, as, they, as they describe him, they, they, they describe that he's got some royal connections. Herod the Tetrarch is also Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the ruling Herod in the day of Jesus. He's the one that had John the Baptist put to death. He's the one that mocked Jesus in the trial. He's the one that sent him back to Pilate, and Pilate sent the, gave the execution order. This man, Herod the Tetrarch, uh, is, is connect, Manan is connected to him in some form or fashion, and we don't know the story. Why is he no longer a part of the court of Herod the Tetrarch? Well, what happened? Because now Manan is in Antioch. 
Herod was ruling down in, down in, in Caesarea. How did Manaean get up to, to Antioch? Did, did, he, uh, did he run away? Was he expelled? Was he condemned and, and escaped? We don't know. We're not told. But what we are told is this, that when Manaean was introduced here in the Scripture and probably in the community, he was known as the man who got away from or used to serve in the royal palace. And you know, when, when, you know you, you've met people like that before. They're connected to a celebrity in some form or fashion. Many of you remember uh, or know the basketball player Michael Jordan. Raise your hand if you know Michael Jordan. I don't like to brag too much, but when I was a student at the University of North Carolina, uh, Michael Jordan was there, and uh, he, had, he had just finished his rookie season with the Chicago Bulls and had come back to go to summer school. I was in summer school the same day. And I want to say that Michael Jordan and I got really tight, but really we were kind of like this. Instead, but but I, I tell people sometimes because I want to associate with the place and associate with with Michael Jordan, uh, perhaps the greatest basketball player ever lived. So you can refer to you know my pastor at Ridgecrest, Mark, was associated with Michael Jordan at one time back in the nineteen eighties. Well, that's kind of what was happening with Manan. He was known for whatever reason, whatever the circumstances, he was known as being formally connected to the court of Herod. Well, now he's one of the leaders in the church. Then, of course, there's Saul who became Paul. There's Saul who was the Pharisee, the persecutor of the church, who then was radically saved by Jesus and given that new name and now is putting his life on the line to make sure others can hear the story of the gospel. This diversity, this cultivated leadership reminds us of some very important things about about the church and about leadership. One is God can take anybody. Why is your pastor standing here today? Because God can use anybody. And my testimony is if God can use me, what's he got out there for you? He's got something. So out of diversity... There is a unity because of the gospel. The unity of the gospel is to be stronger than any diversity that we face over issues of language or culture or economics or sports teams. There's a unity in the gospel that overcomes that and the unity of the gospel that uses diversity for the gospel. What is the third quality of of a gospel impact church i want to share with you and that is the quality of of being a worshiping church the gospel impact church experiences passionate worship passionate worship can i tell you just because it's fresh on my mind let me tell you about passionate worship last night in our gym starting at 7 30 after already having a a session on friday night already having a session on saturday morning already having crazy activities happening all day on Saturday. Last night, 500 or so teenagers and adults uh, found their way to our gym and experienced a worship service. Let me tell you this. It started at 7.30. We didn't finish till 10 o'clock. Two and a half hours. And let me tell you how it ended. I got a video on my phone. I, I started to put it out. They'd run me out if I, if I did that, but... But the, the service ended last night. The band was playing this song. And the catch line of the song was, He called my name, and I stepped out of that grave. You know that song? And they were playing and jamming. And here's what the kids did. They got up out of their seats. They came down and surrounded the stage. And they were jumping, and they were celebrating, and they were singing. And listen to me carefully. They were worshiping Jesus. For two and a half hours on a Saturday night. I was passionate. A gospel impact church experiences passionate worship, not state of complacency worship. Chris Schofield made the comment, I mentioned it earlier, that the church today is in rampant complacency, something to that effect. Rampant. Churches are dying on the vine. And people are asking the question about church. And they're asking the question about worship services. They're they're asking the question uh, about attending and being a part of a worship. They're asking, is this all there is? And if this is all there is, what's the big deal? I know I've been in places before I've asked that question. 
No doubt you have too. While they were worshiping, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They were worshiping the Lord. That's, that's the first clue. If we're going to be a, a church that makes a gospel impact, we've got to be a worshiping church. And I would ask the question, and I'm going to leave the answer open-ended for you to answer. Are we a passionately worshiping church at Ridgecrest Baptist Church? It doesn't mean that we jump up and down like teenagers and run to the stage and stay here till 10 o'clock on Saturday night, although I'm not opposed to that. But it doesn't mean that's how we have to act. It doesn't mean that, that, that we can't be reverent and quiet. It doesn't mean that we can't stand and sing the, the, the old hymns of the faith. It doesn't mean that, that we have to that change a lot of outward things. But what has to happen is inwardly, are we a passionately worshiping church? Do we get up in the morning on Sunday and do we say, Oh, God, thank you. I get to go and be with the people of God. Or are we getting up on Sunday and saying, Well, there's nothing else going on. I think I'll go to church. You get up on Tuesday morning, or before you go to bed on Thursday night, I just want to spend some time with the Lord, just me and Jesus. Because a church that worships during the week is a church that really knows how to worship on a Sunday. And if all you do is come on a Sunday, that's great, but there is so much more. They were worshiping the Lord. I've seen it many different places. Chris Schofield points it out. The problem is many people are attending a worship service without worshiping God. And others are noticing that and asking the question, what in the world is the big deal about worshiping God? I've, I've shared this with you before, but I'll share it with you again. Somebody made the comment one time and they said, you know, a worship service is like the theater. And most people think about the worship service like the theater. They, they, they assume that the congregation is the audience they've come to observe. They assume that the, the pastor is the actor on the stage. He's there to impress them with, with, with some great truth from God. And the people assume that the Holy Spirit is off to the side, whispering the lines into the ear and the heart of the pastor as he studies, as he prepares, and as he comes to present something of value to the audience, the congregation. And, and, and as I read uh, that, I, I tend to think most people view worship in that way. But the, the theologian went on to say that, that worship is indeed like theater, but not like I just described. In worship, in worship, God is the audience. In worship, the pastor is the prompter. In worship, the congregation is the actor on the stage bringing something of value to the one who is in the audience. That's God. Man, when I read that, when I thought about that, I thought, oh God, my worship has got to change. I didn't come to, you know, we, we don't come to worship to be entertained. We don't come to worship and say, all right, preacher, I dare you to tell me something today. But we come in the doors, we sit and take our seats, we prepare our hearts. Oh God, today I'm... I'm I'm here to present to you the worthship of who you are. I have a book on worship that I love. It's a book by Joseph Carroll. It's an older book, and the name of the book is How to Worship Jesus Christ. How to Worship Jesus Christ. And one of the sections in the book, he references Revelation 4, verses 10 and 11, a scene of worship from heaven. And in this scene of worship from heaven, it says this in Revelation 4, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. What a beautiful picture of worship in heaven. And Joseph Carroll says there are four steps to worship. There are four steps to worship that we see modeled in Revelation 4 and we also see it in other places. The first step of worship is submission to Christ. The picture there is the elders, what do they do? They fall down. 
Falling down is an act of submission. It's, a, it's almost a picture back in, in ancient days when one king conquered another king. One kingdom conquered another kingdom. And the, the kingdom and the king that had been defeated was brought into the presence of the king who had defeated him. And what happened was that king fell down in an act of submission. The king from the defeated kingdom is saying by his action of falling down, he said, I used to be the king, but now I'm acknowledging I'm not the king. You're now the king. And in worship with submission, that's exactly what we do to the Lord. We say, Lord, I used to be the king of my life. I used to have my little kingdom, but now I've been conquered by Jesus. And I'm going to fall down and I'm going to acknowledge I'm not the king anymore. You are. Step one, submission to Jesus. Step two, he says, is to give glory to Christ. To give glory. And it says they fell down and then they cast their crowns. And he makes the point in the book, he says, the purpose of the crown. The purpose of the crown is to give and draw attention to the one who's wearing it. I had not thought about that before. The purpose of the crown is to draw attention to the one who is wearing the crown. It symbolizes glory and honor. And and the one wearing the crown is the one who the attention is given to because they're now the one. So, So when you have been defeated and you're the one who's fallen down at the foot of the new king, you're saying, I exalt you, God. I used to exalt me, but now I'm exalting you. I'm taking whatever crown I've got, and as I fall down in submission, I'm giving glory to you by giving you my crown. What used to draw attention to me, I'm now going to give my attention to you. That's worship. Third step, he says, is ascribe worthiness to Christ. Ascribe worthiness to Christ. He references verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And he says, we must divest ourselves of all that we desire, which is glory, honor, and power. We all want glory. Put me out front. Put me on the front page. Put me on the stage. We all want glory, and we want honor. We want people to say nice things about us, don't we? Oh, he's so cute. He does so good. She's so smart. See, all these things. Look at all the accomplishments we have. We want the the glory. We want the honor, and we want the power. We want to tell everybody else what to do, don't we? Don't get too holy on me right now, don't we? And when we ascribe worthiness to Christ, he says we acknowledge the worthiness of Christ alone to receive glory, honor, and power, not us. That's what worship is. It says they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Fasting is mentioned here twice. Fasting means to lay aside food for a period of time in order for three things to take place. One is to to seek after God to lay aside food for a period of time, to spend time in confession of sin, and to lay aside food for a period of time in order to know God's will. And uh, fasting, I would say, is something that's very biblical and is something that's often overlooked, neglected, and forgotten for the most part. But in the Scriptures, it's a very, uh, very important part. And it says here, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. But then notice what happened. The Holy Spirit said, what in the world does that mean? They were worshiping the Lord. They were fasting. They were singing. They were, they, were, they, were, they were doing the things that you do. And the Holy Spirit said, now I want to know, was it audible? I want to know, did God send an angel? I want to know, how did they know that it was the Holy Spirit speaking? And we don't know because the Scripture here doesn't tell us. But I want to ask Now, you a question this morning. Have you ever heard the Holy Spirit speak to you? If you want to hear the Holy Spirit speak to you, invest your time in the worship of God. Maybe it's in the reading of Scripture. Maybe you're reading Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. As you contemplate, what does it mean that He has chosen you and chosen me to take the light of the gospel to the ends of the earth? What does it mean there? And maybe in reading that Scripture, the Holy Spirit says... You're the light, now I'm going to send you across the street or across the ocean. Maybe it's in the, the lyrics of a song. There's a, a song that I've really just kind of latched onto recently, and here's some of the lyrics of that song, and it goes like this. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness your loving kindness 
tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Maybe you're singing this or another song and and you're directing your attention to the Lord and you're, you're ascribing to Him glory and honor and power and you're in tune and nobody else around you hears it but the Holy Spirit speaks to you and tells you something to do. Maybe it's in a season of prayer. I was recently talking to a member of Ridgecrest Baptist Church. I won't call the name because it's not time yet. But the member of Ridgecrest Baptist Church said in the midst of a season of prayer, in the midst of seeking and searching after God, I've heard the voice of God calling me to do something. I'm seeking to know what it is. Maybe it's in a sermon. Maybe it's when the pastor says at the end of the sermon, the end of the message, now consider this today. What is your next step? of faith and obedience. What is God calling you to believe and what is God calling you to do? And maybe in that moment, the voice of God through His Holy Spirit speaks in your soul. I don't know exactly what it looks like. I don't know if for you it would be audible. All I know is that in those times when the Holy Spirit of God has spoken to me in the past, it's been through the Scripture. It's been through singing. It's been through prayer. It's been through a sermon. It's been through spending time with Him. And here's what I know in my own experience. When I'm not worshiping God, I'm not hearing from Him. So don't blame the preacher. (laughs) Lastly and quickly. A gospel impact church produces next step missions. I chose that phrase next step very intentionally because the way God works is He cultivates people and He cultivates leaders and He prepares the soil of our heart. He prepares the experiences of our lives. And and just like the, the testimony that we saw on video, just like the names of the people that we saw listed here as leaders, we come to understand that God wastes No experience in your life and in my life in preparing us for whatever it is He's called us to do next. There are people that that say, well, yeah, I served time in prison. God can never use me. Oh, yes, He can. There are people that say, I was addicted to drugs or alcohol and God can never use me. Oh, yes, He can. There are people that say, I was involved in immorality and I was involved in this and I was involved in that and I cussed God in His face and God can never use me. Oh, yes, He can. I'm sick and, and, and I'm going to the doctors. God can never use me. Oh, yes, He can. I'm in the midst of a a turbulent situation at my job and people don't want to hear about God. He can never use me. Oh, yes, He can. And when you and I invest our time in the worship of God, yes, in a large uh, worship center like this with people that are, are gathered around us, yes, we worship the Lord. But when we're doing, when we're worshiping in that environment as well as personally, as well as in a small group like your connect group, it's amazing what God can do. In the book, How to Worship Jesus Christ, I referenced earlier by Joseph Carroll, he says the steps of, of worship involve submission to Christ, give glory to Christ, describe worthiness to Christ, and now fourthly, serve Christ. Worship precedes service. And he makes a big to-do about this in the book, and I'm glad he does because it's something I've wrestled with. I can't tell you the number of times I've spent so much time doing things for God, I've neglected to spend time with God. I can't tell you the number of articles I've read and people I've talked to uh, encouraging pastors and saying, pastors, burnout is huge among pastors. Pastors are walking away from the ministry in record numbers. Churches are closing in record numbers. But pastors are saying over and over again, they're getting burned out and burned out and burned out. Why do pastors get burned out? The same reason people get burned out. And that is we spend so much time doing for others, we neglect to spend time with God. And it is only by spending time with God that I will ever be able to be useful for God. But if I'm not careful, I can get so involved doing things for God. Because listen, in a church, and in a church this size, I could work 24-7, 365, and not even scratch the surface of what needs to be done around here. And I can go to bed every night tired to the bone and accomplish absolutely nothing. But I can spend time with God. And he multiplies the work through me and through others, through you. So he says we, 
we often get it backwards. We weary ourselves out in service without worship, and we turn up spent, empty, frustrated, and unsatisfied. But when we worship God that leads to service, it turns us into missionaries. It turns us into to missionary teachers and missionary missionaries and missionary business owners and workers, missionary fathers and mothers, missionary students, a missionary Uber driver, I threw that one in, a missionary teammate, a missionary church member, a missionary customer at a store or a restaurant. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you've been worshiping God. You're now on mission for Him. But get it in the right order. So I would close like this. Now we're getting ready for our last song here. I would simply say this, an impactful church is populated with people who are impacted by the gospel. We will never be the impactful church God has called us to be until and unless we are impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to I ask you this morning to, 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 to join me in prayer for this coming week and even beyond, of course, but join me in prayer that Ridgecrest would continue to be and become even more a gospel-impact church. But understand that you're also praying, Lord, make me a person impacted by the gospel. And I'm not saying that you have to be saved and that you're not saved. No, you could have been saved 40, 50 years ago, but there's a time that we need to be refreshed. There's that time that we need to be encouraged. There's that time that, that we just need to experience all over again what God has done for us. And if the last time you were impacted by the gospel was 10 years ago, that's 10 years too long. If the last time you were impacted by the gospel was six months ago, that's six months too long. If the last time you were impacted by the gospel was six days ago, that's six days too long. Oh God, stir our church, stir our lives daily to be impacted by the gospel to the extent that we just overflows out into the community. And people are saying, look at that person from over here and that person from over there. That person used to be involved in what? And this person is over here. And somehow God has brought them together and created a unified church out of a great diversity. And the Spirit of God is there. And they're worshiping. And great things are happening. I want to be a part of what's going on at that kind of a church. That's what the people on the outside would say. Otherwise, they show up at the average church. They say, I'll never be back there. They don't have anything I need. Would you stand with me this morning? Thank you for your, your grace and your mercy for, for listening as, as I've tried to share with you this morning. As we sing this last song, as we sing this last song, I want to ask you simply right where you are to do business with God. What is your next step of faith? What God would have you believe. What is your next step of obedience? What would God have you to do? And you do business with God right there where you are. If while we're singing or as a service concludes, you'd like somebody to talk with you or pray with you or encourage you, Rodney Hicks is going to be down here at the front. Even now, Rodney, come on down if you would. And you just make your way down here to him, and he'll be glad to, to listen, to share, to pray, to encourage you, just like Barnabas did, to be steadfast in your purpose to the Lord. But do business with the Lord. And when we gather next Sunday, if you come up to me before the service and say, Pastor Mark, I want to let you know, I've been worshiping God all week. I'm going to tell you right now, that would make my day. That would make my day. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the gospel impact of the church at Antioch, but thank you for the gospel impact of Ridgecrest Baptist Church. There's so many lives, including my own, that have been changed by the ministry of this church. But Lord, help us in the days to come, not to look back, but to look forward at the continued opportunities that you put in front of us to make an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you use anybody. You use me. You use us. We pray for our community, Lord, that in their hunger and thirst for truth and righteousness, that they would find their way to someone who could share the gospel with them, that as they would find their way into Ridgecrest Baptist Church, they would walk in the door, feel your presence, feel your spirit, worship you in spirit and truth, that their lives could be changed, and they too could bear a new name, the name of Christian. Lord, for your glory, and in your name we pray, as we sing, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together.